Welcome to another episode of The Jimmy Rex Show, where we interview the most exceptional humans doing extraordinary things with their lives. And today on the podcast, I have a special guest, a guy by the name of Eric Partaker. And I met Eric a couple months back. We were at a special mastermind, and I realized very quickly I was drawn to this guy, and I found out that he is the advisor. He is a coach to high-end CEOs and people that are just performing at an extremely high level. And so there's so much to learn from this guy. This uh, He was named one of the 30 top entre- entrepreneurs in the entire UK um, on top of working. He helped, was one of the first people over at Skype. He's worked for McKinsey and Company. But he also built up this Mexican restaurant chain called Chilongo that um, has over a dozen restaurants in the UK now and all over Europe. And so uh, Eric really is, uh, he is a first class experience based life coach working with all the top performers. I've introduced him to a couple of my good friends that he's working with, um, some Navy SEALs and um, different special forces type people from the military. He's just done a great job. They just can't talk enough about how well it's gone with Eric. And so wanted to introduce him to you, my audience. So that will be our guest today. But before we get into that, I do want to talk about my sponsor, Elevate Home Warranty. Um, having sold over 2,000 homes, I've worked with every home warranty company that's out there. And I love Elevate Home Warranty. They're a local. Um, they do a great job. They, they take care of all of our clients so I don't have to worry about anything. My number one requirement to work with a home warranty company was that I don't ever have to have the file back on my desk. I don't ever want to deal with their issues or anything else. They just take care of everything. They take care of everybody. I don't have to worry about the rates. They always give my clients the best deal. So if you are looking to uh, buy a house or need a home warranty, look at Elevate Home Warranty. And with that, let's jump into today's episode with Eric Partaker. All right, on today's podcast, I have one of the most extraordinary individuals I have personally met. This is a coach to high net individuals, to CEOs, to he's the guy that the top boss goes to to figure out how to get the company or the organization to the next level. Eric Partaker. And dude, nice to have you on the call today, man. Yeah, thanks a lot, Jimmy. Thrilled to uh, be here. Um, greetings from London, um, where I'm based in the in, in the UK. And um, yeah, let's let's get into it. Well, it's your story is a fascinating one. I met you a couple months ago at a mastermind here in uh, in Park City, Utah, and it was fun because you and I just kind of I think we kind of just just totally hit it off at the beginning. And when I kind of found out what you did. I was so intrigued because I've coached a lot of individuals. I coach a lot of real estate agents and I love coaching agents that already have a really good business. And then my entire goal is to get them to that next level, that things that's going to get them uh, from a million dollars to maybe two or three million dollars a year, things like that. And you uh, are a life business coach to top CEOs and organizations all over the world. So that's what you do on a daily basis. Yeah. Yeah. So I... I've been uh, obsessed with um, high performance for um, the last 20 years. It's been a thread throughout my career, which started uh, advising. I, I started off as a consultant advising Fortune 50 CEOs at McKinsey and Company, then helped scale up um, Skype in its very early days. When I joined, we were about 30 people, grew to around 500, exited to eBay for $2.5 billion. And then, and then after Skype created and grew a award-winning chain of Mexican restaurants here in the UK called Chilango, 
And I've been obsessed with high performance along that whole journey over the last couple of decades. And two things happened um, with regards to high performance. First is uh, initially I got it all wrong. So in November of 2010, after working super hard, insane hours at McKinsey, uh, doing, doing the same at, at Skype and doing the same with building up my own business, I was returning on a flight um, back to London when I started to get quite nauseous, um, sweating, uh, feeling super unwell. My colleague noticed, jumped over and um, ran over to the stewardess and asked uh, if she could you know, come over to the seat to, to check on me. And she asked if there was a doctor on board. Doctor rushed over and took my vital signs. And then I just remember him saying, uh, we need to emergency land the plane. I think he's having a heart attack. And oh, wow. the plane, plane landed, runway was cleared off. Uh, I was taken straight into an ambulance uh, that was waiting on the runway where they administered nitrates and opened up the arteries and and in a moment like that, there's no time for thought. You don't think what you're going to say. And so whatever kind of comes out of your mouth, I realize that in a moment like that, whatever you say, given there's absolutely no premeditation, is, is about as truthful as things get in life. And literally the only thing that came out of my mouth as I stared up into the eyes of this French paramedic as an ambulance sped off to the hospital was, um, please don't let me die. I have a five-year-old son. And the next morning, I, I woke up in this French hospital, and I thought, you know, what What am I doing with my life? Um, I'm going about this high-performance obsession in the wrong way. You know, it's not just about work and achievement. And although on the outside, I have may, you know, I, I may have looked hyper-successful to someone, it was coming at the price of my health and relationships at the time. So, you know, that, that was the catalyst that, that led to me um, trying to approach high performance in a, in a much more holistic way. And then the second thing that happened along this journey was that um, I suddenly realized that I wasn't the only one that in a CEO or a leadership position uh, wanted to scale not just myself and my company, but also do it without sacrificing my health and relationships. And so I started to to coach other leaders uh, in this very, very tightly knit, you know, hybrid of um, closing the gap between where you are and where you'd like to be, not just as a leader, not just with your company, but also with your health and relationships. So the whole package there. Well, so why is that such a difficult thing for high performers to, I guess, to have that balance in life? Is it because of the amount of effort and singularity focus that it takes to build a company? Like, I mean, you built Chilongo up, I, I think you were doing over 15 million a year in sales. You'd mentioned and had, you know, have over 12 restaurants. Um, that doesn't come without sacrificing something. And so what is it about high performers that makes it so difficult for them to balance everything in life what did you learn through that experience well i think i think there's a common thread it's a bit of chicken and egg because it's the person attracted to building a a business and to the idea of building a business is a certain type of person and the very thing that makes them succeed which is that relentless determination 
that ability to self-sacrifice, that ability to put the blinders on, that ability to just dig deep and you know, power on when you absolutely would expect everyone else to stop, that has a dark side to it. And so the very thing that makes you successful, um, I think, eventually can, without a lot of awareness, can, can cripple you, you know, as it did to me. So I, I just think that it's, it's two sides of the same coin, and the, and the name of the coin is the, the, the determined entrepreneur or the CEO or the leader. And that makes a lot of sense. So you went, I mean, when you started up your restaurant, and you built that up to 12 restaurants, you had just come from Skype, which is kind of funny to me because there's such different types of Completely. companies. What did you, what success principles did you bring from Skype that relate to any field and kind of give us a little bit of an idea of what you learned at Skype that helped you to build a restaurant chain that became one of the most successful in London? Yeah, absolutely. So, so voice over IP had existed for 10 years prior to Skype's arrival. So the key question was, why did Skype succeed, whereas everyone else had failed to succeed, you know, at that same level for the 10 years prior? And um, my business partner, Dan Houghton, and I, we, we zeroed in on, on two things. Um, one was that uh, Skype, you know, our, our product quality was just relentless. Um, it, you know, it was relentlessly good. It was just relentlessly improved. It was um, uh, the spirit of you know constant solicitation and you know asking for feedback, um, just to deliver something that would you know blow away anything else in the market. And the other thing that Skype did really really well is that we had a um, a very compelling tagline. Um, which represented the brand, really. So the, the tagline was, the whole world can talk for free. And so we had a, a, yeah, we had a purpose that extended beyond the company. Because a lot of times when I'm coaching CEOs or leadership teams, I'll ask what, all, what the company's about, what its purpose is about, and I might get, might get something along the lines of, um, you know, we're, our, our goal is to be number one uh, in such and such market, um, which is super self-serving. Um, uh, you know, can you imagine the, the customer that's, oh, I'm so excited to buy from you because I just really want to help you become number one in your market. You know, who, who says that, you know, no, no, nobody, right. Um, and, and how inspiring is that for the frontline employees who are not really going to benefit from whether you're number one or, you know, number eight. Um, so, so have, you know, incredible product quality and wrapped it up in a brand that, that people really loved. And so we took those two core tenants and applied it to bricks and mortar Mexican food. So we were relentless in the product quality side of things. We hired Michelin starred culinary talent to design a burrito, for example, that was far more expensive than anything that we could even dream of selling. But that gave us an ideal to chisel down to. You know, in terms of getting it into the economics of the the restaurant model, um, uh, we sourced uh, certain selected ingredients, go all the way back straight to farms in in Mexico that we have direct relationships with, and um, and then just had this there is no silver bullet approach to uh, you know trial and error with the recipe testing and with the use of continued um, you know, talent and and experimenting and. 
And then the other thing we did is wrap up that uh, incredible product quality and that, that focus on flavor, which is the number one number one focal point for us with when it comes to product quality. We wrapped it all up in, once again, a brand that people would love. So most um, of the top brands out there, they can sum themselves up in single words. You know, Disney's about happiness. Nike screams competition. And that one word distillation for Chilango is vibrancy. And the company's mission is to, to make the world a more vibrant place, um, to brighten up people's days. And with vibrancy as that filter, it then informs the audition element that we added to the interview process to uncover the one in 10 people that have the vibrant personality that will best fit. It, it makes us lean towards the more robust and bold flavors when we're doing menu development. And it certainly speaks for the riot of contrasts and the electric you know, color palettes that you'll see within the physical spaces, you know, the website and the restaurants themselves. So, what, yeah. What was it about um, vibrancy that you discovered? Because I think that's one of the biggest issues that companies have is trying to get that culture and trying to find a cultural fit when they're bringing employees or new employees on. So what was the question or questions that you would ask to do that? So we had a couple of things. So my, my favorite was um, we had a question um, or a requirement, actually, which was please bring your favorite t-shirt to the interview. Now, some people would not bring the t-shirt, so they were easy to <laughs> disqualify. So right. They can't follow instructions. Um, some people would bring the t-shirt, and, and then the key, the simple question was, tell me the story behind that t-shirt. And the key word there is story, because you're giving them every opportunity to reciprocate with an emotional, vibrant, response, even in the way that the question is being asked. And most people would just rattle off something that wasn't particularly vibrant or exciting, um, didn't really feel like it had much emotion to it, whereas others might sing a song related to the shirt, uh, tell an engaging story, um, start laughing when they just revisit the memories associated with you know, the t-shirt. My favorite moment of all was um, I was interviewing this new crew member and I said, so um, tell me the story about your t-shirt. And he just begins to unzip his hoodie, um, you know, his, his sweatshirt. Um, and, and as he unzips it, it reveals a, a t-shirt underneath that says, that said, I, I, didn't, I didn't have a favorite t-shirt. So instead I got this one made. And, and, you know, just amazing, right? So that was his expression of vibrancy. And, um, yeah, it's just a simple little filter that we, we used to. Well, I love the creativity behind it, right? Because I think one thing that, one mistake I think that a lot of businesses make is thinking that you have to do things the way they're done in other companies or thinking that you have to stay inside some box. And I just love the creativity, letting people um, show you because you can't fake that, right? Either you know how to show up with a vibrancy because of the t-shirt you have or you don't. And people that don't, it's like you said, they didn't even bring a t-shirt. And that's the last person you want working on a company if your whole culture is going to be around vibrancy. That's beautiful. Well, so somebody hires you. I mean, you charge a lot of money. It's six-figure coaching per client. Um, but um, I personally know the value of coaching. I've had it my entire life. I coach a lot of other people. 
I think anybody that's trying to get to the next level, no matter where you are, should hire a coach. And people that are at the level of that you, when they come to you, it's such a, a high value individual. He's obviously leading multiple other people. What is the process look like um, for somebody that's, you know, looking for that level of coaching? I guess I'm just trying to get my head around what you would even do with somebody that comes to you for coaching. Walk us through a little bit of the processes of what you do for your clients. Yeah. So, um, so I, I, it's all about scaling up. So it's about helping them continue to scale uh, themselves, uh, their leadership, their company. But again, without without sacrificing or actually improving their their, their health and their relationships. So the first thing I typically do is is just sit down with them and define well what is the very best version of you look like, and not just on the work front, but also on the health and the home fronts. Because when I dig deep with a leader, they don't, they just don't, they don't want to just be high performing leaders. They also want to be fit and healthy. They also want to be great spouses and parents. And, and, and this, from a high performance point of view, taking this holistic uh, perspective is absolutely essential. In sports, for example, you don't, you don't achieve high performance by just looking at what you do on the field. You have to look at what you're doing off the field as well. I mean, I learned this the hard way. So, so I helped them define what does best look like, not just in the work front, but also in the health and the home front, and then create some you know, strategies and plans to begin closing those gaps. Some so have, somebody's listening, if somebody's listening to this right now, is there an exercise you put them through or something they could do to specifically figure out what they look like at their best? Well, I have one thing which I highly recommend that my clients do, which is create their dream team. So... Um, I don't want people to feel like they have to close these gaps on their own, and I want them to have a bit of fun with it. And um, identity-based change is far more powerful than you know just an outcome-based change. And does that um, mean like instead of saying I don't smoke, you say I'm not a smoker? Is that kind of what you mean by that? Yeah. Or for example, I I want to lose some weight. Okay. That's that, or I want to get into get into shape. That's an outcome that someone's seeking. Um, it's much better to start with well, give the identity of the version of you a name that has already achieved that outcome, and then operate from that persona or perspective. So I've had I've had three alarms that have gone off on my phone for years. And I, I basically segment, I use these alarms to segment my day. And each segment is powered by a best self-identity that, that means something to me, basically. It gives me something to both shoot for and actually measure my behavior against. And, and sometimes, you know, that self-management happens just before or in the moment, and I'm able to course correct. Sometimes it happens, happens after the moment, and, and it prompts me, you know, to, to reflect. Um, so at 6.30 a.m., uh, it says World Fitness Champion. Not that I'm a world fitness champion or ever will be, but that's who shows up in the gym in the morning. And sometimes I'll be on the eighth rep of an exercise, and then suddenly this little voice goes off in my head that says, and watch what Eric's about to do next. This is what separates you know, the champions from all the rest. You know, So it's like it becomes this fun thing. And um, at 9 a.m., uh, it says world's best CEOs. Uh, world's best CEO, because... 
it's a prompt for, well, how would the world's best CEO walk through that door right now? How would he you know, or she uh, interact with people? How decisive, inspiring, reliable does that version of you look like? But the game changer for me was the intentionality that came into play with the third alarm that goes off every day at 6.30 p.m., which is simply world's best husband and father. Because it just prompts the question, well, how would the world's best husband and father um, walk through the door you know, right now? And before that, no, well, frankly, a few years, so a few years after the plane incident, my wife said that she was leaving me if I didn't change my ways. So she said that I was around, but that I wasn't seeing her. And, um, and, and, and this was a game changer for me because instead of getting home and, and perhaps uh, being too tired to listen or um, not want to help with things or you know, not, not feel like sitting down to play with the kids, this question would go on in my head. Is, well, is that how the world's best husband responds? Is that how the world's best father Response. Well, and if you're, you're, I love the simplicity of it because if you're like me, I want to be the best. Like, I, so I just love the intentionality of setting the alarm so that you remind yourself, hey, don't just show up today. Don't just show up and do what the average person does or fall on the couch or fall into whatever, you know, some lazy way of being home and not truly being present. Show up as the world's best husband and dad. That's so beautiful. I love that. Yeah, and 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 it and you're supposed to play with it, right? So it's supposed to be a world fitness champion. Let's say you're into swimming, so your alarm might say Michael Michael Phelps, because that's that's who get jumps in the pool in the morning. Um, and you know you you could be um, you know be a big Meg Whitman fan, and so you know that's that's who's. That's that's the persona going off, you know, for the CEO alarm. So it's 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 up to you. You have to use words that mean something for you. It can be a phrase, it could be another person, but it needs to be set at a time that both prompts you to be a bit more intentional. How am I gonna be in this next segment of the day? And it's also there to be a bit of a stick because sometimes <laughs> You know, that alarm goes off and it's the whack you need because I still forget them. Uh, it goes off and I go, oh, no, I'm not being the world's best father right now. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's that's one thing that I work, you know, work on with leaders. Um, another another area that I, I, I work on is, is productivity. This is a funny one, productivity. So... Super high achievers, they get into this realm where it's like even to admit that they're not as productive as they would like, it would be almost sacrilegious. I mean, can you imagine, for example, the CEO of a Fortune 500 company sitting with his board and they ask, well, is there anything you would like to improve? And he or she says, you know, I got a really bad procrastination problem. Yeah, it's so true. Yeah, or I'd really like to improve my productivity. But the thing is that they're human. Of course, they want to improve their productivity. Of course, yeah. There's no one to tell or talk to it about. 
Yeah, exactly. And so I, I, I give them three, I, I train in really three super, everything I do is about trying to come up with practical tools to, you know, better the, the area. So there's three super things, uh, super simple things that I try to instill here. Um, one is the realization that a productive day starts the night before, not the morning of. And there's a difference between survive versus thrive. So most people think that they can survive on less than eight hours of sleep, but yeah, but how much higher, you know, how would you thrive if you had the full eight? And so they use the phone again, put a little digital sunset alarm in there, um, set it to go off an hour before bed so that you're not getting any of that blue light into your eyes. And then all the electronics should go off in the house because any blue light going into your eyes the hour before bed will lower your melatonin production by up to 50%, which, which will, you know, mess up with your mess with your, your, your sleep, sleep quality. And then the second thing is in the AM is we go straight into being reactive. So what typically happens is that you're using a phone as your alarm. Um, now, remember, I said you should shut it off an hour before bedtime, just get an alarm clock from Amazon instead. So you're using your phone as your alarm. This is what typically happens. Shut off the alarm. What's the first thing you do? Oh, notification. Now I'm in my inbox. And then, oh, LinkedIn, social media, Slack. All of this is happening sometimes on the way to the bathroom. And um, and it just puts you in this reactive scatterbrain mindset. So I always encourage people to always be creative before reactive, at least for the first 60 minutes of the day. And it's incredible the output you have when you start suddenly having time for those first 60 minutes, the thinking time, the strategy time, the creative output time. And then the third thing that I recommend people do is really master the habit of single tasking. So people lose up to 28% of their workday by um, uh, thinking they're multitasking, but actually working very, very inefficiently. And if you can master the habit of single tasking and not constantly jump around to different things, then if you extrapolate that 28%, take out vacation weeks out of a year, that means that the average person is losing 13 weeks a year. So if you can master the art of single tasking, you can literally regain an entire quarter. What would that do for you competitively? What would that do for you as a CEO, as a leader? What would that do for your company if your company's playing with four quarters in the year, the workforce in its entirety, whereas your competition is playing with three quarters? That's so, such a powerful lesson that I think a lot of times people think they multitask very well. I had a guy on the podcast about two years ago named Dave Crenshaw. He's an author, and he wrote the book, The Myth of Multitasking. And mm -hmm. I actually hired him as a performance coach to help me. And I never realized how much time I was wasting switching back and forth between different tasks. And I still, totally. I mean, it's been 10 years since I took the training and I still am not the best at it, but I, I felt like I truly felt like I got two to three hours back per day in my life Easy. after going through his training and you just don't realize how much time you're wasting. And so I can see the power of that. I mean, if you even waste an hour a day, one of the things I challenge my real estate clients that I coach on, I say, what is one thing you're doing that takes up an hour of your day that you can stop because we're going to get 30 hours back in a month. I mean, that is powerful. That's, you know, that's two full weeks every quarter that you're getting back if you can stop doing those things. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, another area 
um, that comes up a lot with with clients and and it's a absolutely a roadblock to high performance is it's the whole art of difficult conversations and you know people nothing gets people squirming more right in their chairs and having the courage to have difficult conversations sooner rather than later and this is something that was absolutely drilled into me during my time at McKinsey because you see at McKinsey we we operated as a team not a family and and if you if you look at great sport team sports teams you know they're constantly on the lookout for the next best players and and calling the bottom of the pile from their lineups and and it's it's one of the essential factors to make to making sure the team keeps both winning in the short and the long term and and within our companies you know we also need to continue to look for new talent and and reconfigure the the lineup. So one of the points I, I I try to drive home is that there's there's a big difference between a team and a family, because teams change regularly, and are optimized to win at all times. Think about it. While families strive to stick together no matter what, so having a team attitude can lead to some really tough decisions, but you can't argue with the results. And the the three highest leverage difficult conversations that I think typically require coaching to make sure that they're both happening and happening on time are um, good but not great performance, your job is on the line, um, and you're fired. So like that first one is, 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 is a funny one. So good but not great performance. So it's almost when someone does a pretty good job where it, it, it's almost hard to say anything. Because you know, it, it was fairly good. It was pretty good. Um, but pretty good. That, that doesn't win championships. That doesn't win battles. Does pretty good win market share? So, so sometimes just saying it how it is you know, can work really well, such as, you know, I, th- I think you did a pretty good job here, but, but I think we both know that you have so much more potential than this, and you could have done even better. Or you know, a bit more future orientation, such as, all right, so, you know, we both know you did pretty well on this project, and we learned a lot. And on that note, how might you complete this project better or differently in the future? So that that conversation hardly ever happens. And uh, the job, your job is on the line one. This, this is a funny one for me. So another one. So, um, when, in my experience, when a leader first feels that someone on their team, that their performance might be jeopardizing their future, you know, that they might be on their way out, there's usually a three to maybe even a nine-month lag between that feeling, that concern, and before they say anything. And that's three to nine months for everyone else in the team to see the exact same suboptimal performance that you see in the person and then also question your leadership as they wonder why you're not doing anything about it. So the moment you realize someone might need to go is the same moment you need to be scheduling the meeting to, to tell them this. Because if you don't, it's like you just do them a huge disservice because you might lose most of the time they can fix it in my experience but 
Not if you pass the window of opportunity when they lose the will or the people around them no longer want to support you know, the change that's needed. Um, and then you know, the last one is just around you're fired. I mean, it just takes way too long for, for, for people. To... So how do I know from a standpoint of these people have so much success in their life and they, you know, they're used to kind of telling everybody else what to do. How do you, and help us here to how other people can maybe give advice to their bosses or CEOs or, or people in their lives that maybe you're in a superior position. How do you give the information to them where they accept it in a way where they can take it, um, you know, as needed, as opposed to, I think a lot of people would be intimidated to be in the position you are or to talk to somebody and try to give helpful advice to somebody that, you know, is ahead of a company or something like that. Well, one of the techniques um, I use is just to establish, you know, the, the third party common ground. So, um, I, um, I, you know, I might say to a CEO or a leader, we both know that this is important to you, right? That you want to be achieving, you know, this 10% increase in market share within that geography over, you know, the next, uh, 36 months or whatever it is, 12 months, six months. Um, how, how do you think the performance or the, the attitude or the behaviors of that territory manager is, is helping or not helping, you know, in light of that goal? So we're kind of getting to what needs to be said, but linking it to, you know, this, this common ground or this common area that they want to, want to achieve. Um, the other thing I do, though, is right, right at the beginning of a relationship, I say that, um, you know, one of the reasons that they're hiring me is that I know that it's, it can, you know, they can be alone at the top and that, um, that doesn't just come with a feeling of, of loneliness that can also come with, uh, a feeling of not having enough feedback. We all need feedback to thrive. And so I say right from the beginning that I'm there to serve them. I'm not there to be their friend. And in that spirit of service, I'm going to be the person that boldly dares to say to them the things that no one else dares to say. Again, in the spirit of serving them. And said right up front, people typically react super positively to that. They want to hear that because it's typically not happening enough. Yeah, I know in my life, I love the people that give me feedback that have the skill to do it in a way where they don't offend, but they truly help me. I, I, I truly do try to value so much. And sometimes it's hard not to get defensive because, you know, somebody's telling you something that might be hard to hear, but it truly is um, so needed and so uh, appreciated when somebody gives you some feedback that you can then take to make, you know, your organization or your business better. Yeah, and it's all it's all learning process. It's it's um it's not that I've 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 mastered any of these things, but I'm constantly learning and constantly trying to to improve and and um one one of the other things that I recognize is that people become very very frustrated with themselves when they're trying to cross that chasm, especially the entrepreneur from founder to CEO 
And it's because they're not appreciating that it's one thing to start a company as a founder. It's an entirely different thing to scale one as, as a CEO. And, and they have to take a very conscious, you know, directed approach to, you know, to their leadership development. It's something, something I recognize in myself. I and mean, that's, that's what led to that CEO of the year accolade that, you know, that I received last year in the UK, because two years before that, I looked, I, I just frankly thought that there were some gaps in, in, in my leadership that I needed to shore up. I, I took that one hour, always creative before reactive slot, and I consumed as much as I could on, on leadership development. I, um, I did 360s with my team, uh, spoke with other CEOs, and, and that, that's something that I try to drive home with with you know, the coaching clients that I work with, work with, which is you need to recognize that it's it's a completely different ball game to the be you know, to be the CEO of a, of an organization that's that's scaling. You it, it becomes more a, a role of, of being a coach of making sure that you're hiring all the star players and that they're playing well together of managing that sports team as I mentioned earlier. Um, so that's that's another you know point that I try to drive home with people. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Well, what are a couple other things that you see that CEOs do really well that maybe the average person, you know, just somebody that's starting out maybe in their career, they're just in some kind of middle management position. A couple things that the best CEOs do that anybody can implement into their lives to help them get to that next level in their business and their life. Yeah, absolutely. So one is. Um, being decisive. So uh, a, a, a lot of people just take too, too long to make decisions. And um, being decisive at the CEO level, it doesn't, need to meet, need, doesn't mean you need to be constantly making the right decisions, but at least make decisions quickly. And if you make a wrong decision, uh, you, know, you can correct it quickly as, as well. And one of the best ways to improve your decision-making ability and not just speed, is to generate options. So when you think that you only have an A or a B choice or it feels binary, sit down with the team and try to generate at least at least a third or a fourth option because when you generate options, this has been shown to increase the effectiveness and, uh, and the outcome you know, or how good a decision is. Um, so decisiveness is a and, and, and how you make decisions is, is definitely uh, a big area the the other thing would be um, becoming more and more comfortable with risk or discomfort um, you know professionals I love this definition of a professional versus an amateur so a professional takes action whether they feel like it or not an amateur needs 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 to you know needs feeling to precede action so i might have a client who wants to be writing a book on the side how's the book going oh not well oh okay why's that i haven't felt like writing lately oh okay well great well when's the book going to get written then um, so the one I hear in real estate a lot is because I mean the one thing you have to do as a real estate agent is you have to make phone calls every single day. Yeah. And I get agents all the time that I'm coaching and they say, well, I just don't like making phone calls. And I'm like, well, 
let's find a way to make you make like making phone calls because that is the literal one thing you can't outsource. You can't not do. You have a goal exactly. to get X amount of deals and that requires X amount of phone calls regardless. So, there you, you know, you have to, you have to train yourself to fall in love with those things. I, one of the quotes that I always had on my wall when I was building my business was the difference between successful and unsuccessful people is successful people have merely learned to do the things that the unsuccessful people don't want to do. Totally. That's the nail on the head. And, and the way you get better at that is by doing it. So it is. When, when you sense that you don't want to do something, take it as a signal that you should be stepping into it and doing it. Yeah, I think it's beautiful. Well, I, uh, I love that. I love the advice you give about being decisive as well, because you're most of the time better off making the wrong decision than no decision. I truly believe as long as you're willing to pivot quickly, because you can, you know, time has proven that those that take action eventually rise to the top. And it's the people that need everything to be perfect that never actually get anything done. It makes it difficult exactly. for them to, to achieve anything. Exactly. Action, action, action. Totally agree. Well, I love that. I love it. Well, I appreciate your time, Eric. I know it's getting late in London. It's probably 10 o'clock PM out there. And so I'm going to let you go, but this has been a treat, man. I think anybody listening to this is going to be intrigued. If there is a CEO or somebody's, you know, runs a company and is interested in hiring you as a top performance coach, uh, where do they find you at? Uh, just go to the website. Just go to www.ericwithacpartaker.com and drop me a line and we'll have a chat and see if there's a potential fit. I love it, man. Well, thanks again, and we'll be in touch soon. All right. Thanks, Jimmy. Great to talk to you. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Trillion Mortgage. Uh, having been in the real estate community for the last 15 years, having sold over 1,800 properties, I've had a chance to work with every lender in every mortgage company in town, and I refer my clients to Steve DeYoung over at Trillion Mortgage as a mortgage partner and uh, just a great loan officer that really takes care of my clients. I know I can trust Steve. He gets the job done, gives the best rates. And so highly recommend if you're looking to buy or refinance a home, Trillion Mortgage. Thank you for listening to The Jimmy Rec Show. And we hope we've inspired you to make your life and the lives of others extraordinary. We'd love to hear feedback about this episode or any others. Contact us at thejimmyrexshow.com or find us through all of our social media channels.